so yesterday uh, we uh, celebrated Charlotte's fourth birthday. Um, yeah, it was sweet. Uh, we had a good time. It was a unicorn party, so that's that's good. Uh, I guess if you're four. So, um, and uh, I was just reflecting on it last night, going, uh, so. You know, she's out of this kind of to your face. So there's this thing called the terrible twos. Have you guys ever heard of terrible twos, right? Have you heard about this? And for the longest time, I always thought terrible twos meant like the terrible second year of your life, right? You were two years old. And then we got to year three, and we we're like hitting our head against the wall going, she's worse than she was this year than last year. Like she's a, she's a horrible person. She doesn't add to society. She's constantly subtracting from it. And... Um, and somebody's like, you know what? It's the terrible two years, the two years. And I thought, okay. Um, and I've been kind of waiting, thinking like, we're, we're going to see an exit ramp off of this pretty soon. Um, but what I'm finding is like, those people lied too. Like nobody knows. Like nobody knows. Every, everybody's just like grasping at straws here. Um, and, and so I'm going to tell you the story. And while I tell you this story, he, here's the question I want you to be thinking of. What's the most embarrassing emotion for you? Like, what's the thing that you get most embarrassed about emotionally that you exude? Okay, so be thinking about that. Um, so, like, for example, for, for, for Charlotte and in turn now for me, uh, the thing that really can be, like, what do you do with this? Right? That thing is, like, her, like her rage against life, like this anger that she has. Uh, we took her to, um, I took her to, out to Wolf Chase Mall, which maybe is enough to rage over anyway, you know? So I took her out to, to Wolf Chase Mall to go return something. Um, and uh, we, we were in the mall and we were like trying to like ride around on different little uh, things that you put money in to try to satisfy her needs, right? And so uh, we, we were doing this one little ride and she gets like sight of that Build-A-Bear thing that's been around for like 30 years or something. Like there's this thing you can go build a bear, you can stuff it, but now you can build like My Little Ponies and all kind of things. And she saw that these My Little Ponies in there and she lost her mind. And so we had to go inside and as soon as I was, as soon as I was like, Okay, Charlotte, let's, it's time to go. She had a mental, spiritual, and emotional breakdown right there. Like, she denied Jesus. She denied me. She denied, like, everything that she has in front of her in life. And I about denied her. Um, and so I tried to, like, take her out of there. And so it's, it's a big echo room, right? Like, malls, you probably haven't been in one in 10 years, but malls are big, and they're empty now. But, um, yeah, so... But like, it's just like not a lot of people and just a lot of space. So she's screaming and I'm, I can't really hold her. She's like somehow planking on me. So like she's planking, but I'm holding her and she's going sideways. Um, she's pulling at, at things, you know, shirts, jacket. I don't have hair, but like she's trying her best. She's screaming. Um, people who obviously don't have kids are giving me uh, judgmental looks, right? Like parents, you know how that goes. Uh, so, and if you don't have kids, then, then you're the ones who are being judgmental. So, um, like, people are being judgmental, and I'm just like, just keep my head down. And then she goes for the bite. Like, the child goes for the bite on the arm. I'm like, oh, no. We're not doing a bite. Not here. Not now. And so we're, I get her out. The only empathy I have is another mother who's got three kids hanging off of her body <laughs> looks at me, and we kind of give each other, like, the nod. You know, and I just get outside, and um, anyway, and I remember I just got in the car, and I just thought, 
this is not worth it, all right? Like, this, this pain and suffering is not worth it, the rage that she has, the anger. Um, and so I'm kind of hoping that dissipates with year four, but it's not, uh, because here's what I know about her. She got it from me, right? I, I'm, the, I'm the most angry, most rageful person I know, and um, I think I hide it well, but I've found that I don't um, from you. You've told me this, um, but I, like, you know, sometimes we go, okay, that's someone else's thing. When they get all angry, that's, that's not my thing, but silent uh, raging is just as bad. Like, it comes out sideways, you know? That's why your lip, like, quivers. Um, it's why you have to run to things to numb yourself because people make you so angry. Like, I remember um, years ago in my early 20s, I was leading groups to other countries, like, doing mission work. And there was this one group I had. I took them to Morocco. And every morning, we would have this group time, and we would read Scripture and pray. And there was this one young girl in the group, um, and every morning she would have her coffee, and she would, uh, she would do this thing every time that she drank it. She would go, ah, over and over again. Every morning, I about lost my freaking mind. I would clench my teeth, and, and by the way, if you do this and I've been around you, I notice, okay? And I've clenched my teeth. Some of you are like, I'm not going to hang out with this guy. Um, I just noticed, like, I noticed noises and sounds and slurps and, and whatever else, and I've, I've also noticed me addressing it doesn't go over very well, so I have to kind of sit on it and swallow it, but it's like swallowing a bomb, right? And it implodes in me in, inside. And you might, may not be able to relate to this, but there, I think more of you do, then you want to admit that, that anger is a hard emotion to deal with. Like, what do we do with all this anger and this stuff pent up inside of us? Because we're seeing things go down, whether in our own lives or the lives around us or in our world, and we look at it and we just go, that's not okay. Whether it's somebody slurping over and over again every morning with the same coffee, whether it's a child losing their mind in the mall, or whether it's the injustice we see within um, sex trade, uh, whether it's racism, whatever it may be, you can like up the ante and go, those things are not okay at different levels. And it's really hard to know what to do with all these emotions we have. And we've been in this series called The Humanity of Jesus, where we're trying to understand that Jesus was a human, a man, a person who dealt with all these emotions. Matter of fact, the famous theologian um, John Calvin said that Jesus put on our feelings and flesh. Like he, he, he purposely put it in that order. Jesus put on our feelings and flesh. Like to be human is more than just to have flesh. To be human is to have this center of your being, these emotions that you have to learn how to work with and interact with and somehow use because if you don't know what to do with them, they will control you. They'll spin you into places and corners and dark times that you may never get out of. It's a powerful thing. They say that when babies come out of the womb and they're limbic, that's where the feelings, by the way, your feelings aren't in your chest, okay? Your feelings are back in here somewhere in your head. It feels like it's in your chest, but it's somewhere in your head. It's called the limbic system. And studies show that children, babies come out of the womb, 99% developed in their limbic. 
Meaning, when you came out into this world, you were 99% on target with your feelings. You knew that you had feelings and you had to express them. What you didn't know with this kind of frontal low part is how to express them. If we really don't learn how to express them, these feelings will end up bringing more damage and harm than we do help. And this morning, I just want to look at something with Jesus, how Jesus somehow can deal with this almost volatile emotion of anger, something that either can ruin lives or change lives, that can burn the world down or build it up. And he uses it in a way that I think can be inspiring for us and and really helpful. So we're going to look at a couple of things here this morning. We're just going to look at what anger gives us, and we're also going to look at what anger costs, what it gives and, and what it costs. So let's look back here at verses 32 through 33. Now, we looked at this passage actually a few weeks ago when we ended our Divinity of Jesus series, and I purposely wanted to come back to it because there's two parts to this story. There's a part about Martha. If you remember, when Jesus comes to Martha, He comes with a challenge. Like, Martha, your your faith is waning And I need to challenge you to consider that I am bigger and more grand. I am the resurrection and the life. That I am the one that's going to bring change no matter what circumstances may may bring you. I'm the one that can bring life in the midst of it. But we find here that he interacts with Mary a little differently. With Martha, he was direct and challenging. But with Mary, there's this, like, um, he's almost showing the underbelly in a sense of, of him. He's being more vulnerable. Let's look at it. It says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I don't know if you've been around a person before that is, that is dealing with death, maybe somebody very close to them, and there really just aren't enough words to express what's happening in that moment. You just know that it's very severe and very heavy. And Anybody who tries to show up into a, especially think about this, show up to a funeral, right? And there's someone who has passed, there's all those people grieving, and anybody who walks up in there is like, you know what, it's all going to be okay. It's all just going to be just fine. Like, your pain and suffering isn't going to last very long. Like, how many, how many times do you actually want to listen to that person? If anything, you're like, man, just shut up and leave. Like, you're, you're not doing anything here. You're trying to bring a hap, hap, happiest time for everybody when really what needed, what's needed here is just simply this sadness of this um, tragedy that's happened. And notice what happens here with Jesus when she says this. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, a couple weeks ago, Drew, one of our pastors, he gave a sermon talking about the compassion of Jesus, and he gave us like this Jesus formula that you can see all throughout the New Testament, I mean, all throughout the Gospels, and that is Jesus always sees, he feels, and then he acts. He sees, it affects him, and then he acts. It's this kind of rhythm of Jesus and how he interacts with the world around him. He does it as step in an act. He lets the situation hit him, mess with him, go deep inside of him. And we see Jesus, it says, it's really interesting, it says that he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. And um, translators have tried their best to interpret this in a way that we can try to wrap our minds around. You have to remember something with translators. They're humans. 
just like you. And it's not that translators necessarily always have agendas. I don't want to make this some kind of conspiracy theory. But there, listen, there are certain things you're more comfortable with than not. And if you're reading certain words and certain passages and interpreting them, you might interpret them certain ways. And I would say, in general, the Western church has been uncomfortable when it talks about feelings. It doesn't know what to do with it because we are more of an enlightened group, right? We have our head to direct us and tell us where to go. We have to remember something. Um, this wasn't uh, – ancient Near Eastern people weren't enlightened in the sense where you would go, oh, okay, well, they saw the world in this way. But they were very in touch with the world in ways that you and I aren't. Because for a Jewish person, they didn't go from their head to their heart. They allowed their heart to speak and then let it usher out into the rest of their lives. And so for Jesus here, he's being affected emotionally. And it says that he is greatly, that he's deeply moved and greatly troubled. And I'm just going to put these words up here for you. Um, The first word that it says that he is greatly moved is this word, embrimaiomai. And it's not something that you need to necessarily know that word as much as this that it literally means to snort with anger. To snort with anger. Matter of fact, the only way they could visually give something that would be appropriate for this word would be like a horse that snorts when it's upset. This is the imagery that would be brought up for a Jewish person if this word was used. It's only used a handful of times in the New Testament and always with Jesus, by Jesus, around Jesus. It's to snort with anger. And that when you start snorting with anger, you become indignant. You ever gotten so mad that you almost are like indignant in a room and people are going, whoa, that's intense. Like if someone were to snort with anger, you wouldn't think like, they're fine. Their day is going just fine. You know, like it's all going to be okay. No, if somebody snorts with anger, you're like, well, I'm going to step over here and not interact with you ever again. Because that's just a weird thing, like to snort with anger. So Jesus is standing there, and he's like snorting with anger, like snot bubbles coming out of him, like he is bothered. And then this other word, it's not just that he's snorting with anger, it's that it's terasso. It would be that he is agitated, and he can't let it go. So here's Jesus seeing the situation. He is snorting with anger. He sees people weeping and crying. He's snorting with anger. He's becoming indignant, and he is agitated and will not let it go. So what is he so agitated by? Well, let's think about this. First, here are two women who have lost, in a patriarchal society, the, the income, the protection for their home. In a patriarchal world where women had little to no rights, these two women now are going to be put into an incredibly vulnerable situation. Or who knows what they'll have to do to take care of themselves moving forward. If their friends don't step up, if the community doesn't take seriously taking care of those who are orphaned or widowed or exposed. Jesus sees that. He's also sorting with anger and upset over death itself. Because death is not the way it was meant to be. We were not meant to live, die, and peace out, and that's supposed to be okay. That the world was originally founded off the fact that we were meant to flourish, to live with our Creator, to not be debased in the perfidy of a broken world. Jesus is looking at brokenness and snorting over it and saying, that is not okay. 
That is unjust, and I will not live with these unjust circumstances. And he becomes taken with this passion. Now, the way that anger works in this way is you can have anger about what's unjust in the world around you. That's the thing. If you're a teacher, for example, that's what moved you into teaching. You started seeing the injustices. Like, you didn't get into teaching for the pay, right? I don't think you did. There's better careers than that if you want to get paid. You didn't get into it for, like, the acclaim, because these children that you're teaching will not recognize you for another 20 years of the impact you've made. You got into it because something drove you inside and said, what I see in the world is not okay. And therefore, I want to be a difference maker. I want to bring change in the world. That's what anger can bring, change in the world, no matter what's happening. Anger, this kind of anger is what moves you into relationships, to work it out with someone when you have differences. The anger is what moves you into making amends in your marriage when things are sideways. The anger is what moves you into somehow connecting with a person that you've gotten sideways with. It's what moves you across the room to connect with a person who's not like you through color barriers, through privilege barriers, whatever it may be. And anger, this kind of passion that wells up inside of us, is also what moves us towards self-care. It moves us towards wanting to have boundaries and take care of ourselves, maybe to go to counseling or to eat better or to go work out or to get a good night's rest. Like it's these things that say, I need to take care of me. It's actually a really beautiful thing. It moves us into the things that are not right to want to do something about it. And Jesus is having this kind of indignant, snorting anger, and he will not let it go. It's not something he looks at and goes, oh, man, that's really too bad. Now I'm going to go back to my really nice, privileged, safe thing I get to do here. Instead, he goes, no, 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 no. I'm going to keep staring at this. I'm going to let it affect me. I'm going to let it move me. Because anger comes when we let ourselves see the things that are not the way they're supposed to be. Do things that are unjust, not right, make you angry? Simple question for you to consider for the next few minutes. Do things that are not right and unjust in this world, do they make you angry? Do you let yourself stare at it and see it long enough that maybe you, find, you might find some snorting inside of you, some indignation, some agitation? Or do we simply look at it and because the anger is too much, we try to get away from it and we look away? Do the things in your life that are unjust bring about a sense that you need to step into that moment and somehow bring some change, or do we tend to try to get away from it and say it's too much, I can't deal with this? Now, there are two main enemies to having anger, this kind of anger that can really bring change in the world. First would be rage, and then would be depression. Let me kind of talk about this for a minute. Now, rage and anger can seem to be the same. Matter of fact, you can probably use it um, interchangeably. And I would imagine most of us in this room aren't very comfortable talking about this idea of anger, of having this indignation. We were told that to be a good Christian, right, is don't be angry. And therefore, when we see um, 
a person angry, right, we try to get away from that person. Like this, listen, this is something that I see within growing up as a, as a white person in a white world, whenever I'd see a person of color angry, I'd be like, oh, man, that's just an angry person. I need to get away there. But if you grew up in unjust circumstances, if you grew up behind the eight ball, if you grew up in a way that life didn't work for you the way you wanted it to, you might be angry as well. That the anger isn't wrong. The anger is intense, and we want to label it something like that as rage. That when someone's angry enough to go, this is not okay, I want to fight for these things in life, we go, whoa, that's too much. I can't get around that. Let's just all have peace and love and acceptance of one another. What we really mean is, your passion, I can't deal with, that fear inside of me, so I have to get away from you. Let me show you something here, a couple of, a couple of passages. One would be Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Let's look at that. It says, and he looked around at them, we'll put it on the screen, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So the, the context here is Jesus, it's, uh, it's, it's at synagogue where they would worship, and there's a man who showed up with a withered hand. Now, this means all kind of things to this man, that he actually can't be, he can't have like be part of the workforce. He's very limited in how he can take care of himself. He's probably more than likely a beggar. Matter of fact, in the ancient Near East, if you had any kind of um, uh, impairments, you were looked at as judged by God, and your parents must have sinned for you to have this infirmity. So here's a person who's grown up with a label on their forehead that somehow they're wrong and messed up and not okay. Jesus looks at this and says, that's not okay. Jesus wasn't just doing arbitrary healings because he just wanted people to like him. His healings were about righting what was wrong in the world, stepping into moments, having anger and passion for things to be different. And it says he looked around and he was angry the word here is orge, which means passion. Jesus was passionate. He looked around and he was passionate. He was passionate that these Pharisees were judging this man. He was passionate that this man didn't have a place to belong. And in Jesus' passion, his orge, he steps out and he heals a man, which there was a rule that you couldn't heal or do anything like that on a Sabbath. No activities. And Jesus is losing his mind on this room. How dare you think these ways? How dare you set up a world that works out only for you, but for others that it doesn't work out for? You're judging them. This is not okay. He's passionate. He steps into a moment. His passion moves him to change. Now, there's also, though, a passage that you're probably very familiar with in Ephesians. Let's look at this. It says in Ephesians 4, 26, 27, be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So, we're like, okay. So, Jesus is angry, and he's talking to us about maybe being angry and having passion, but then, like, don't give room for the devil. What does this mean? So first off, the word that was used for Jesus being angry, we looked around the room, or gay, is the same root word used for the first anger used in this sentence. You following with me? 
All right, so it says, be angry, but sin not. It's the same word that Jesus, they used for Jesus when he was angry, but it means in motion, meaning it means when you are angered would be a better way to say it. When you are angered, do not sin. When you are stirred up inside of you, do not sin. Meaning, it's a razor's edge between when you can be a positive or a negative influence with your anger. It can go one of two ways very easily. That if we aren't careful, when we are angered by something, it can turn into something destructive and harmful than actually constructive and helpful. Because then the next word he uses is different because when he says, do not the sun go down in your anger, it's actually another word that would use that base or gay in there, but it's not even worth all the little participles that are added to it in the Greek to try to explain it all. But just trust me because I'm a preacher, all right? There you go. Don't do that, but trust me in this moment, maybe for a minute. Okay, so the idea is, is that when you build that word out, it actually doesn't mean passion, it means rage. See, the first part of the sentence is saying this, do not be, um, when you're angered, do not sin. And then he says, because if you let the sun go down on it, meaning if you let a whole bunch of time pass on you being angered with something, and you sitting on it, and you sitting on it, and it not moving you, it eventually will sour inside of you. He's not saying, how many of you have heard this, that do not let the sun go down on your anger? That means you need to go, like, make, make right whatever is wrong by the end of the day. Anybody heard that before? Okay, that is horrible, horrible theology, all right? It's abusive, it doesn't work, forget it, throw it away. Welcome to Christ City. All right, so whatever you have before, that's not true, okay? And I'm sure I'll get emails about it, bring it on. So the thing is, like that doesn't work within Jesus' world. Because what he's not saying is, is that, you know what, make everything right and let's force this moment for us to be okay with each other. Because anybody's tried that out in marriage knows something, it don't work, right? You ever tried that? Like, okay, we're not going to bed until we make this work, and then you're like staying up? Okay. So the idea is, is that we have to um, be willing to deal with it, but not let it sour on us. Because when it does, it turns to rage. It turns to rage. And the rage is when you try to get away from a person or away from a thing because it's just too much. It's just too much. The moment's too much. The fear I have with you is too much. So there's the rage that comes out, but there's also, there's also like this depression. You know, if you were to take the word depressed, it likes, it means like to be pressed, to be pressed down. It's like you have nothing in you. You ever feel like that you go between this passion for life or depression in life? Yeah, like there's this thing that you want to go for, and then you're denied it enough times, you just want to go hide out under the covers. Like you keep going for it in a relationship, you keep going for it in your job as a teacher, or whatever you're doing when you're working with people, you try so many times, and before you know it, you're just kind of left going, man, what's the point of this? See, anger is a, is a fuel. Matter of fact, look in your bulletins. Julia Cameron, she's a screenwriter, and the story to her from this book that she wrote, The Artist's Way, is really interesting because she, did a, uh, uh, she wrote a screenplay, the movie flopped, she got all this criticism, and it drove her to have to write this book in the early 90s. And it says, anger is fuel. We feel it and we want to do something. 
Anger is the firestorm that signals the death of our old life. Anger is the fuel that propels us into our new one. Anger is a tool, not a master. Anger is meant to be tapped into and drawn upon. Used properly, anger is useful. It's full of use. Sloth, apathy, and despair, what we just talked about, depression, are the enemy. Anger is not. Anger is our friend, not a nice friend, not a gentle friend, but a very, very loyal friend. Anger gives us passion. It gives us fuel to step into moments and bring change. But it's not just that. It also gives us, look at verse 34. It gives us more than just that. Verse 34 says, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then it says, the shortest verse in the Bible, two words, right? Jesus wept. And we want to think that because it says wept, if you use the word wept, it's like you must really be crying. But there's different words in the Greek for cry. This word for wept means like quiet tears. So you have to imagine something. Jesus, at first, he's snorting with anger. (sighs) He's just getting upset. And then he sees where Lazarus is laid down, where he's passed and in the tomb. And if you can imagine, it's just Jesus staring at that tomb and tears start coming into his eyes. And he's not doubled over, he's not boohooing, it's just streams coming down his face. And I think this is interesting for us to consider because for a lot of us, anger is what got us in the game of wanting to bring change in life. Anger is what got us into wanting to be these difference makers, to go and be a part of the change, whatever we had to do, whatever we had to sacrifice. And then you got into it long enough to realize that maybe you were being played, maybe it was too much, you were being depressed, too much rage, and you start numbing out and checking out. Have we gotten so callous in our passion to see the world changed that we've lost the ability to simply cry over the world. Like you're passionate about the world, you're passionate to bring change, you're passionate to go do things, you're passionate about ending racism, you're passionate about stepping across the lines, you're passionate about seeing whatever unjust industry out there is happening changed. You can get on Twitter, you can subtweet, you can do whatever you need to, you can work your way around it. But in your own moment, staring at that situation, can you cry? Can you simply have tears? And you may say, oh, don't judge me, Robin. I'm not judging you, I'm just pointing to Jesus. Because somehow Jesus, in his anger, he could seek for change, and he had had enough room for tears. He had enough vulnerability, tenderness to him to realize that the world is difficult. Times are hard. And sometimes the best thing you can offer yourself and those around you are tears. His anger is engaging His anger is polarizing. His anger can be motivating, but his anger is tender. Joseph Rue, he was a French philosopher. I love this. He said, lofty mountains are full of springs, and great hearts are full of tears. Lofty mountains are full of springs, and great hearts are full of tears. So are you angry over what's unjust in the world? But the other question is, 
can you still cry over what's unjust in this world? If those two things can't come together, in your anger you'll become judgmental and rage, and in simply you're having your tears, you'll become depressed and try to check out. You need both your anger and your tears to take on whatever this world throws our way. Change in the world, change in relationships, and listen, change for yourself. So that's what anger gives us. But then what does it cost us? Because it costs something to be this angry in the world. A few verses here. Look down at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. You have to just pause here for a second and consider something. What happens next is something that would kill Jesus. See, Jesus has been traveling all over Palestine, Israel, doing these miracles. People had heard about it, but he was always very careful with his miracles within Jerusalem. And even so, miracles of healing, whatever else, like, okay, we can deal with that. But you have to remember, all these miracles Jesus is doing, they're is power. is showing power. And as a minority who's underprivileged, under the rule of Rome, under the watchful eye of Rome's minions, of the Sadducees, they're watching for him. They're watching. Here's this minority. He's going to step up. Let's be careful. Let's keep watching him. And he knew that if he ever made a big splash, they would have to kill him. Because you can't have someone that powerful claiming to be a messiah running around free. Otherwise, he'll bring a revolt with him and change the world and upend the order that we have at this moment. And Jesus knew something. If he raised Lazarus from the dead, everything would change for him. That that would send him on a direct course to the cross. Jesus knew that if he were to raise Lazarus from the dead, he would die. For Lazarus to be raised, Jesus would have to be buried. Because then it says in verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And immediately after that, there's a conversation with the head priest, Caiaphas, who then sets in motion how they're going to have to kill this guy. When you're willing to be angry in life, it costs you something. No one gets to seek change without being affected by what the world will throw your way. No one gets to keep their life on their terms when you're trying to bring life to the world around you in dark places. Vulnerability is what costs us when we step into the world to bring change. Jesus was willing to be angry enough for change, a change that would kill him. And for us to be that angry, it costs us being exposed. We'll put this quote up for you by Chip Dodd. He says, authentic anger is a caring feeling telling us that something matters. It shows our yearning and hunger for life. It shows us, even confronts us, even comforts us with what we care about. Anger exposes us to vulnerability because it shows the internal caring one has for something or someone. Anger 
is an open hand that reaches to create something, even though it exposes us to vulnerability and minimal control over the outside world. Anger takes a stand. Anger is the willingness, listen to this, is the willingness to be in pain for something that's worth more than the pain you're in. Anger is the willingness to be in pain for something that's worth more than the pain that you're in. Are you angry enough for something in life right now that it's worth more than the pain you're in? Are you angry enough for the world to change around you? Because it's going to take that passion for you to go see change happen because it's going to cost you a lot. Do you have enough anger for a relationship to be reconciled that went sideways? It's going to cost you a lot. Do you have enough anger and passion for you to get healthy and whole, to do what you got to do to take care of you? If so, it's going to cost a lot. Listen, getting healthy, if you need to, like, for example, lose weight, like there's, they've been trying for hundreds of years. How do we make this easier? It's not. It hurts. It's painful. Getting healthy in unhealthy relationships where you're always a codependent, you don't have boundaries, hurts. Doing what you got to do to take care of you hurts. Stepping into another's life that is shattered and broken by the way they were raised hurts. It costs a lot. I think for a lot of us, we have really low thresholds of pain. I know I do. I have for years. I don't like pain. I want to get away from pain. If it hurts, it must be bad. But what if the hurt, when we have something worth being hurt for, just reminds us that change is happening? What if the hurt we're willing to walk through to be in a relationship with another person can remind us that somehow this is worth it? We want Jesus to make everything painless, but here's the reality. You have to live painless when you don't have anything willing to be pain for. That's so cheesy, I know, but I couldn't think of a better way to say it. You'll have to be painless in life if you don't have anything you're willing to be pain for. So what is that for you this morning? What were you passionate about? And so taken with, maybe in your 20s, maybe in your 30s, depending how old you are, I don't know. And you just lost that. Like it's that thing in you that said, this is what life is meant for. This is what my life is meant to do. Listen, for example, parents, it's hard parenting. I respect parents that stay in the game. Because <laughs> it's a hard game to stay in. It's a hard thing when your child rages against you. It's a hard thing when your children want to deny you. But you know something it's worth it. It's worth that investment because these children are yours. They're yours. They're so beautiful and wonderfully made in God's image. If you've been in the game of trying to take care of yourself and make more effort for your life to be different, it's going to be painful, but it's worth it. And listen, this city, this city is worth it. Memphis is worth it. You know, Memphis either bends you or it breaks you. And if it breaks you, you have to leave it. Everybody comes into Memphis with these ideals of how they're going to change it. But at first, you have to be changed by this city. You have to embrace the fact that there is a horrific narrative of racism that seeps into every aspect and every part of how the city's been built out from the river. You have to be willing to embrace the narratives and enclaves of how the most segregated time every Sunday morning is, is most segregated time every time of the week is Sunday morning. 
You have to embrace the fact that you are, if you are a person of, who's white, you're not a white savior coming in to change everybody's lives. That the best you can offer this world is to be a faithful presence, to stay in it and not to leave, to not try to fix everything, to be present with people. This city can break you, and people usually have to get away from it. But listen, you're here in Midtown. There's no place that tries to break you more than this part of town, right? Are you with me? Yeah, you can't stay here very long unless you're willing to actually bend with it and, and somehow try to seek how to change it and be a part of this change by understanding it and having empathy. It's difficult. But this church, listen, this church has sustainability. If we've been through what we've been through so far, we're not going anywhere. God has plans for this church. You're a part of that. But here's what's going to take for us. We're going to have to get snorting angry, y'all. Snorting angry, indignant, not okay. Stare at it and let it agitate us. Be willing to put not just our money where our mouth is, but our actions where our mouth is. To let ourselves be taken into something that is uncomfortable and painful. It's called relationships. It's called understanding a person who's not like you. It's called not trying to filter everything through your head and your right theology, but be with the person in your heart and let their presence affect you. That's what it takes. And I think we have a shot at it. And especially now as we come to this table, because there's no other place that we come to that tells us something. Our God's willing to be with us through pain, and this table represents that. Because of that, we can now be with others. We can be with ourselves. This table represents change that's possible in this world. So as we pray and center our hearts, I pray that you would even get your heart ready for this. That when you come down and partake of this, what you're saying is, I am going to stay in this thing and let this anger be a positive thing that brings help and not harm, that brings construction and not destruction. Let's pray. Father, thank you for an important and difficult word, something that Jesus, you model for us. You show us in your anger that we somehow can be not okay with how the world is. And instead of raging against it or trying to get away from it all, we can simply engage it and realize that we're not the change bringers, but we're part of the change. We're not the ones that maybe will see the final say-so of how this city can be transformed and loved, but we can be a part of that whole process, and we want to be faithful in it. So now as we come to the table, we pray that we would see how faithful you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen.